welcome my friends to another episode of Is That Really Legal? with Eric Rubin. Today you're going to hear me chat with my friend Bailey Sledden. Bailey has uh, been involved in theater and studied to be a stage manager and um, had a few strange things happen in her life that led her to become a financial advisor. And you're going to hear her talk about those events and those things. And then she's going to talk, she doesn't give financial advice, but she does talk about how we do not get educated well in our culture about how to handle our own finances. And that there are a lot of people who make money pretending to educate us who actually have no idea what they're talking about and frankly send a lot of misinformation and a lot of bad feelings where it's, it's more than unhelpful, it's damaging. And I will let you listen to us talk about that. And we'll talk about creativity and we'll talk about life in general like we always do. And um, if you want to send any questions or comments to me about the podcast, go to isthatreallylegal.com and there's a place to do that. And you can see all the old shows that are already up there, many episodes. Um, with really cool people like Bailey and myself. Um, you can subscribe to this podcast, and I urge you to do so. You can also review this podcast in one of the bazillion ways you can get it, either Audible or Apple or iHeartRadio or in all of them. I don't know what they all are. Um, but please avail yourself of that. And in the meantime, please listen to me chat with my good friend and brilliant financial advisor, Bailey Slevin. Bailey Slevin, welcome to Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin. Thank you so much for being with me today. I couldn't be happier. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> so uh, as I will probably say in the intro, I knew you back in the Boston area. And you, like many of my guests and myself, have not had a straight line journey because nobody does. And you've had a really interesting journey which is part of what makes you such an interesting and cool person. So I'm going to start with how we met and then go backwards a little bit. But I think we met at the New Repertory Theater. Is that when we met or was it a different time? So we, we had Facebook friends in common, I think, before we even met. And then one of us, I think, went on, like, I, need, I want to meet my Facebook friends and I had lived in Boston. Maybe you know my sister-in-law, Marlo. I think that might have been how it originated. Could be. But I, went to, I went to school in Boston, but we didn't meet until we were both in New York. Although I think uh, we were going back and forth. Yeah, I had spent some time you know, living and working in Boston, but also doing work and sort of living in New York. Yeah, so I did a lot of bouncing until I decided that I really needed to be back. I'm from New York originally. You where you're from New York originally, or yeah, a New York and New Jersey. Gotcha. And um, I think what's interesting is for those of us from New York, we find Boston entertaining and fun. But I personally, and people, you can write me at is that really legal.com. You can go to the website and leave me a nasty message, all you Bostonians. I think of Boston as a really cool town, but I don't think of it as like a world class city. And I'm not going to put you on the spot that much but did you feel like being a new yorker going to boston did you like bars 
the, the subway closes before the bars close. That's problematic. You've created <laughs> a bunch of drunk drivers, but that's, anyway, what did, what did you think of your Boston experience? Because I know you got a BFA in Boston. Yeah, I went to Emerson College and got a BFA in theater management and production. Um, I went there because I grew up in, in New York, New Jersey. I knew I was going to work in, I knew I was going to work in theater um, because that's the things that, you know, you know when you're 18. Um, and I said, well, you know, since I'm always going to be living here, I should go somewhere else for college. And Boston was relatively close to home. And I got there and I was like, well, isn't this adorable? <laughs> it's just the cutest little city I've ever seen. Oh, and that is awesome. much, I was like, this is my training wheels for New York. I got it. Cool. I'm glad I'm not the only person who A, felt that way and B, will be getting mail. Um, but let's, I love Boston. It's just, it's adorable. Yeah, I agree. I, you know, and it's got all that cool history stuff. You can walk around and go, oh, Paul Revere's house. You know, it's fantastic. Um, but let's back up. You said you grew up in New York and New Jersey. Can you be more specific and tell me what it was like uh, as a young woman? You're younger than me, not a ton younger, but younger. So what was it like? You know, how did you enjoy school? What were your interests? That kind of stuff. So I was born in Brooklyn. Um, yeah, but Brooklyn. I started, yeah, Brooklyn. <laughs> you can include that. Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah. Both times. Uh, <laughs> and then I started my school years in Queens in Rosedale. Uh, but I was only there for one year before my parents moved us to New Jersey. Uh, and we lived a town over from where my mom grew up. So I actually had some of the same high school teachers that she had. Wow. Um, so I disliked school uh, a lot. It did not work for me. My parents now are like, man, I wish alternative schooling was a thing back then because that would have been much better for you yeah. because I excelled in the places that I was interested in excelling. And I did not in the places that I had no interest. And my grades very clearly reflected that. And my parents would try to have talks with me and be like, well, why don't you do this? And I'd be like, because I don't care and it's irrelevant. And to this day, they're like, you made valid points and we had to tell you to just do it. Um, <laughs> Parenting I, has got to be hard when kids are smart. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't deal well with authority or having someone who's a boss or someone who's in charge of me. I had teachers who were not trained well, I guess. It was the 80s. They didn't have to be. Um, my third grade teacher forever traumatized me about how bad I am at spelling. And I think it just locked it in. It's, it's thank God for spell check because I am a disaster. Oh, My sorry. seventh grade, I had a seventh grade teacher who I was sitting in a parent teacher conference and my mom actually stopped her like five, 10 minutes in and said, you have not said one nice thing about my child. So if you'd like to start there, we can continue this conversation. Wow. That was also the teacher who we had reading, uh, reading assignments and tests and vocab quizzes every week. And I never did the vocab homework, but I always got at least a 98 on the vocab quiz. And this woman was like, you have to do the homework. And I was like, why do I need to do the homework if I get a 98 on the quiz? Like logically, why do I have to do that if I already know it? Clearly didn't ingratiate me towards teachers. 
uh, I had a couple that were, that were okay. But for the most part, no, I wanted to do theater. I wanted to be in, in choir and have a solo. And I just, I wanted to do my thing. And I found Drama Club and I started uh, directing when I was a sophomore and just taking control of anything I could take control of. I did uh, like kids theater out there in Bergen County where I was in shows. And it was really just theater was the only place that, that I felt at all accepted because school was just a disaster and I was shy and people took that as arrogant. And I was like, I don't even know how that could be because I can't even make eye contact with you. Well, that's an interesting dichotomy to me that you are clear, directed, and I don't want to use the word controlling, but let's say you want to be in charge of your experience. I'll put it that way. And at the same time, you were shy. That's got, that's got to be difficult in any circumstance. But I'm also thinking, because I've been talking a lot about gender and I've tried to have a lot of women's voices on the show, a lot of queer people, women growing up, well, up to this day, probably, and I'm not a woman, so I may be doing this all wrong, but I feel like anyone who wants to be a director, who wants to be in charge of their experience as a woman, could be labeled as bossy or arrogant for no reason, but you're a woman and you're behaving this way. Did you kind of have that experience and does that still happen? When I was younger, it was really, I was just more too shy to get any of that. And on the rare occasions that I really did get power, I mean, I probably was an arrogant little thing because I was finally getting to control my circumstances. It isn't until I'm, I'm 40 and I think probably until like my late thirties, I have not been able to control my circumstances in a positive way for me and the people around me. I had been working, like I've been working on making my life better for me. I struggle with PTSD, anxiety, depression, insomnia, all of that. Um, Cause you know, it's New York, who doesn't? Um, well, you've had a few things happen. We'll talk about it if you want yeah, we'll to. Get, we'll happily get into to all of that. Cause it's a, a windy path that's informed by my trauma. Um, but really only in the past few years, have I learned how to communicate with people in really effective ways? So in situations where I'm not happy or I'm not feeling heard, I have the language to, to control my world without stepping too much on other people's worlds. Um, sometimes it's necessary. Sometimes, you know, people are encroaching on me and it's like, no, this is my boundary. Right. Um, Just being clear about boundaries is unusual and an adventure for some of us later in life who had to realize, oh, we, we could do that. We could let people know there's a boundary there. Yeah, so I, I was out I, with friends and the bartender where we were started making like really awful jokes. And we had been in a conversation. We just kept interrupting the conversation to make bad jokes. And I finally, I was like, I don't actually find jokes like that funny. And the person who is like 15 years younger than me who was next to me, she was like, I got to get that energy. I was like, gotta. <laughs> it takes a while before you can say that to someone and not worry about it. Wow. I, I want to jump a little bit 
ahead to going to Boston. So you, so you leave elementary school or high school or all of that stuff. And did you find now that you were studying something you were interested in, that that was like an accelerant for you? Like things, what was that experience like? Well, freshman year was a really mixed bag for me uh, in very many ways. Uh, first of all, I had planned on being an actor. I was going to be a musical theater performer. I was going to be Bernadette Peters, like very specifically that that was my goal. Um, That's an but, awesome goal. Right? <laughs> when it came time to audition for colleges, um, I had a major medical event and I was out of school for two weeks. I was severe. It was a, a bleeding issue and I, I was uh, severely anemic for at least six months. I missed all of the auditions. And I, that that's, how, you know, if you miss the audition, that's it. That's, that's right. the business. And so it's a much longer story, but I found stage management. I went to, to Boston to Emerson College. A great and, school, but in my, from my understanding. Yeah. Um, my problem wasn't the school. My problem was I was dealing with, for some reason, yet another medical disaster. I had been misdiagnosed with a neurological disorder and was very, very over-medicated, especially considering I was misdiagnosed. Sure. And so I it was on uh, prednisone and I was taking just way too much for way too long. And it made me very, very sick my freshman year. And I had, I was like 20 pounds heavier than I normally was. So my clothes didn't fit. I was uncomfortable. It messed with my emotions. I was getting worse migraines than ever. And by the and way, at this time, you're surrounded by people who are already incredibly dramatic because they're all yeah. actors and actresses. And they're all, you're looking at them, some of them are probably suffering from anorexia and bulimia. So you look extra heavy to yourself because they're wasting away, fearful in their own little drama. So it yeah. must have been something else. It was, I was living in a triple Okay, with, I just wanted. Let, let me just hang on a second. So, if you were in a triple, was that like Somerville? <laughs> or no? Because triples, as I understand it, are like. Um, oh, oh! Did you mean like just a triple, uh, an Emerson triple, triple person? In the dorm, it was a three-person room. God, I'm sorry. I was thinking of those houses in Somerville that are three stories. Oh no! That's no, a no. very specific kind of thing. My apologies. So you were living in a triple with two other roommates. Got it. Yeah. And you were saying something about them. Um, oh, and I just, I got so sick that um, in October, actually, on my birthday, my 18th birthday, I had, my mother drove up to Boston from New York, picked me up because I couldn't walk. I had such a bad migraine and took me back home. And I had a CAT scan of my head to make sure I didn't have a brain tumor on my 18th birthday. Actually, the film's in, in the apartment right now. Um, I didn't. But then I had to like go and demand from the doctor that he take me off of this medication. We found out it was just torn cartilage in my wrist. And that's why the thing kept swelling up when I used it. Um, wow. that hurts so that me. was my entire first semester. Um, and it took a while to, to get settled again after that. Um, but I did. I enjoyed it so much more when I was doing what I wanted to do. I got a job outside of school as soon as possible. I love working. I love making money. It just makes me 
feel productive in the world. I like to see fruits of my labor. I volunteered on farms also, like it's not the, the money specifically. I like to work and see a result. You know, what's funny is I feel the same way, but I have a strange little version of that. A lot of the legal work I do, whether it's the pro bono or close to pro bono criminal work that I do, or the showbiz work, which involves contracts and time, what have you, I love doing laundry. And I love doing laundry because within a few hours, I take a whole bunch of dirty clothes and I make them into neat clothes that I fold according to the KonMari system. <laughs> and my drawers all look perfect like a Brooks Brothers showroom. Uh, shout out Brooks Brothers. If you're interested in sending me anything, you can do that. Go to isthatreallylegal.com because I mentioned you. All right. Anyway, um, but I haven't worn anything for Brooks Brothers in decades. I don't know why I did that. But my point is, yeah, like having completion and seeing, you, like you take something and you make something of it is just... And I think we both share that when it comes to a theatrical production. They do take time, but it's not for the most part, unless you are starting from scratch with like an unknown project. When you're in a known theater company and they're like, we're putting this up, it's going to be three weeks, four weeks to go from we've cast everybody to, you know, start rehearsals while there's building a set, whatever. And then we're in previews and then here we go. Um, I love that. I, do you love that too? Um, I mean, I spent a lot of time as a stage manager, so at, nothing makes me happier than opening night and nothing, I mean, everyone's going to shoot me for this one, but I miss tech so bad. There is nothing like it. There is nothing like being in a room, even though you hate everyone in that room at some point, there's, but you all... You all want this show to be great, even if it's a different show you're all envisioning. I just want to be, I'm, I'm but, sorry, there's going to be people listening who don't know what tech is. So I just want to take a sidestep because yeah. not everybody's theater people. So why don't you explain? Because you're my guest. So, yeah. So rehearsal is what everyone's the most familiar with. And that's for the actors. Tech, and this is what we tell actors when we're training them in school, Tech is not about the actors. Tech is about everyone else. It really it's isn't. About, yeah, it's about the set. It's about lights. It's about props, sound, projection, everything that's happening around the actors. And it's the time where the behind the scenes people get to introduce the actors to all of that stuff and you figure out if it works and where the costume changes happen and how one scene, one set gets off, another one comes on without decapitating someone. I was going to say, it's not about the actors, but in a way it's ultimately about the actors because it's about their health and safety as well as getting the best performance. I could be emoting my ass off, but if I'm not in my light, it is irrelevant. <laughs> or, that yeah, it's yeah. for the actors, but it's not about the actors. Uh, that's great. I think we can agree on that for sure. And I've always loved having my props be there when I need them. <laughs> Things like that, which all, all live theater stories that are funny usually start with something going horribly wrong and having to make it work. Somebody, not, somebody missing their entrance in, in a show where you can't make up the words because it's Shakespeare or you, know, you could, but like you got a wing iambic pentameter or, you know, that kind of stuff. But um, 
Yeah, I always remember a particular stage manager I worked with who said that the stage is a dangerous place. That's what they always started saying. The stage is a dangerous place. Get your, you know, keep your head in the game because there's a lot of stuff here that can fall or a slice or whatever. Um, yeah, so anyway, I I love that. And I I love your enthusiasm about your fellow tech people because as an actor, I I personally love to watch all the stuff that's going on. And I've seen people hang racks of lights for decades. But if you held a gun to my head, I couldn't tell you anything about lighting. <laughs> but I know that when it's good, you can tell. And when it's bad, you can tell. Yeah. It's interesting because with the technical elements of theater, some of it, like if it's good, you can tell. If it's bad, you can tell. But some of it, if it's good, you have no idea it's happening. Also true. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's only when it's bad that you're like, what happened? It's like watching the Tonys and you're like, what happened with the sound? <laughs> By the way, did you ever see a Broadway play that, I, it's not my favorite, but I literally have never laughed so hard in my life. Um, the play where everything goes wrong. I want to see that. And I was just really bad about going to see the theater that I wanted to see. But I have learned from the pandemic that if I want to see a show, I must buy tickets to that show now because I have no idea what's going to happen. What an incredible wake up call for everybody too. People just wandering around, whether they're 20, 40, 60, thinking that we all have as much time as we want, which is not accurate. Not to get overly macabre or anything. And, and you know that, you've had some- okay, I sell insurance, if anyone should know <laughs> things could go wrong, like, here. You know, for a while I was doing trust in the state stuff and I still can for people, but nobody wants to talk about it. People will talk about any legal issue except their own death and taking care of their family. Like really, it's like, it's, it's harder than pulling teeth. People would rather go to the dentist than like go over an estate plan. What about you and insurance? Do you find that to be a similar situation because insurance is crucial and I, I'm not going to make this a commercial for insurance, but if you've lived through something where somebody was not appropriately insured, you know, the damage that can happen to people as a result. Anyway, I'll let you. Yeah. I, well, that's a big piece of it. So each insurance is different, like renter's insurance, which I don't say, but just to start with it, for people who have a one bedroom and not that much stuff, it's generally under $30 a month and what it can protect you from, it, it's like, so it's everything. It's ridiculous. Again, not financial advice, but when we think about insurance, we think about either having it or not having it. And that comes down to either paying for it or not paying for it, which means do I wanna pay for something else or do I wanna pay for insurance? And that's what it boils down to. Instead of thinking, well, if I don't get insurance, then I'm self-insuring. So right. if, I don't have, if I don't have renter's insurance or homeowner's insurance, then if something happens to the stuff in my apartment, I am 100% responsible for replacing it to whatever degree I'll be able to. Is that, your $1, I, right, is that your $1,000 iPhone, your $2,000 laptop? your thousands of dollars worth of lucky jeans or, you know, I don't know, your uh, collection of all-star converse, whatever it is that you yeah. wear, right? 
So are you self-insuring or are you paying, you know, a couple hundred dollars a year to an insurance company so that they'll cover all that stuff inside and outside your apartment? And then we take it up. It's like, okay, so now let's talk about health insurance. Most people get this one. Like if you don't pay your health insurance premiums, you're self-insuring and that could mean financial ruin. Sadly, even with health insurance, yeah. uh, people, <laughs> yeah, we, and we definitely can't talk in depth about that, but I think that we need to undergo a conversation in this country, which we still seem to be kicking down the road, even with the advances that we've made. They are just, you know, there's just, it's a big subject. Uh, well, I'll say this, you and I had a conversation when we were just having coffee once and you said to me, um, you know, you should really make sure you have disability insurance. And yeah. it was sort of a throwaway thing. And it's one of your, I don't know if I want to call it financial advice or not. It's probably, it's just, it was friendly advice. And, and I found the inexpensive policy through my bar association. And as I thought about it, I was like, wow, that's a really, it's not that expensive for me. They came and they literally did a physical exam in my apartment pre-pandemic. Yeah. And it's just like, that's a thing I don't even think about. And it's great. great. Disability insurance, if you can get it, is a great thing to have because depending on how it's put together, really, if you have, especially if you have group coverage and then individual coverage, sometimes you can get up to 90% of your pre-tax income covered or after-tax income, which is crazy. And there, it's a really a la carte product. So if you want to cover a smaller amount, cover a smaller amount. If you want all the bells and whistles, get all the bells and whistles. But if you don't and you're out of work for a year, like the majority of the population might be at some point or most likely will be at some point, where is that money coming from? And you know what? No one's allowed to say I got it covered because everyone was unhappy the last year and a half. Right. I mean, look, you and I know a bunch of professional actors who I thought, oh my God, they made it. I uh, I don't want to say his name. I'll call his, I'll say his first name, Evan, who I worked with um, in Into the Woods in a professional production in Boston. I've seen him in several different Broadway shows. He's in a lot of Broadway stuff and he just always gets cast. So I just assume, hey, you know, Evan lives in Astoria, I think. He's a very happy guy. He made his Broadway dream happen. Well, no one's Broadway dream has been happening for a year and a half. Like, I have no idea. I, please, I hope he's doing okay. But I actually want to take this moment to say, you, you and I are talking about finances, but you, we've neglected to say, how did you get into that world? Because when we last spoke in this, we're, we suddenly went from, you know, I love doing tech and theater to, yes, insurance is important. I think we missed a big step there, or I, I didn't uh, cover it. So uh, can you tell people how how you made that turn and why you enjoy doing the financial thing. Oh my God, it's so funny that you put it as how did you make that turn? Because it happened when I turned off the highway in my car and then fell asleep for a split second and drove into a tree. Wow. And then it's a pretty epic story of how I kicked my way out of the car. Um, I know you were very badly injured. I was very badly injured. I shattered my my right humerus into Which five. Is not it took uh, 
that day they, they kind of half said it. That was one of the most painful things I've ever been through. Yeah, for the uh, squeamish, you when we're talking about this, it's okay if you fast forward a little bit because I've seen pictures <laughs> of you've had surgeries. It's not like you've given terribly graphic pictures, but you've shown some x-rays and things on Facebook and shared information with friends. So I'm sorry. I try to be respectful of people's (laughs) gross boundaries. Um, But it's important for people to realize this was a traumatic event. Yeah. Um, I, it took two surgeons to put, put it back together. Um, And I was in physical therapy for about a year and a half. This was 15 years ago, and I've had 10 surgeries on the arm in total. The most recent was about two months ago. Right. Uh, which, honestly, I have some questions about the efficacy of that one, but we'll see. Um, I should tell people that when meeting you, you don't look like you've ever been in an accident. Yeah. You, I have, you, you have, move normally. You look like just a healthy human being. In fact, you have like done those mud Marath- not marathons, but you, you do yeah, some crazy do athletic it. stuff. So like, thank yeah, goodness. I work, out, still- I work out every day now. I am more fit than I've ever been since the accident. Um, and I just do more or less what my doctor tells me. And when I don't, I have to have surgery. <laughs> uh, but what happened that day was I was in massage school because I, I was planning on becoming a massage therapist to help supplement the stage management career. Um, and I was supposed to be working on my first film, but it was a heat wave and I hadn't been sleeping. So I was going to drive home to my parents' place in Jersey to take a nap in the central air. I did not make it that far, um, and broke my arm. I couldn't obviously do stage manage, uh, sorry, massage therapy. And my arm was so badly locked in a 90 degree angle for so long, um, that I couldn't do stage managing either. And my parents who are amazing were taking care of me and cause I, I couldn't live on my own at that point. Um, but they said, you know, it, it's maybe time for you to get a job. And I was like, I would love nothing more than a job. I am so bored. I am so <laughs> bored, but tell me who is gonna hire me. I go to physical therapy three times a week and then I'm on like Percocet for the rest of the day. Some days I can't do, like, who's going to hire me? And they said, you raised some good points. We'll get back to you. And the next day, my dad came in and he was like, you're working for me. And he's a financial advisor. He was a composer uh, back in the 70s. Uh, so he knows the, the career transition. Uh, so I went in and I started filling out paperwork for him. And then I started sitting in on the uh financial advisor training sessions, and was just blown away by how much is not taught to the general public, specifically about personal finance. Because even if you go get a business degree, they don't teach you about personal finance, they teach you about business finance. There's no personal finance curriculum. Right. Nobody tells you the effect. Yeah. No, there's, there's no one who tells you the effect of compound interest either in your favor or against your favor, like a high interest rate credit card, just as a simple example. Or when you have compound interest and people are like, I really want compound interest happening in my account. It's like, great, but you also have compounding taxes. So at some point, like that has to be taken care of as well. So the two go hand in, but no one does that. 
Um, I was meeting with a new client this week and like many people, she was like, well, one of my goals is to get passive income. And I was like, well, what, what do you define as passive income? And she was saying that she was going to rent out, uh, like get an apartment and do Airbnb. And I was like, that is in no way passive. That's a business. Like, let's talk about what passive really means and what it takes to get there because it's such a, a lovely buzzword, but the work you have to do up front to get there, it's a lot. It's only right. passive once, once you like get to that point. And a lot of people, actors, um, a lot have been told that that's what they should be doing, which is why they're all voice teachers now. <laughs> hmm. That's hard work, by the way. If anyone's listening, that's not passive either. And yes, having, stayed at, having stayed at an Airbnb in Madrid right before the pandemic, I can tell you that Airbnb was not passive income to anybody. Whoever owned it has to manage the people who come in and clean it and also have to deal with Airbnb, the organization. There's, a, there's stuff to do. It's a, it's a real estate business. It's really what it yep. is. And anyway. so like, people get caught up with these things or... Um, well, we can touch on it or not. It's up to you, the whole robo-advisor fad that's very concerning. Um, that has to do, again, with, I think, some predatory investing practices on people who aren't qualified investors. Well, I can tell you this. Um, it's not different. If it is what I think it is, it's not different from people deciding to do legal work with the equivalent of a... Uh, of artificial intelligence on the internet where they fill out some kind of questionnaire and out pops a will, which may or not really be a good idea because it may not have asked them a couple of questions that matter to their jurisdiction or how much money they have or whatever. It, certain things I believe should not be left to a simple program that you interact with on the internet. And I'm guessing that is how what you're talking about. Is that accurate? Yeah. I mean, I don't invest people's money until I've sat down with them at least two or three times, done a risk tolerance questionnaire, had a conversation about their plans for the next three, five, 10 entire life years. I don't know how, how a robo-advisor can do that. And how does it fit in with the overall portfolio? You have your 401k, you decided you want to go into whatever portfolio you want. Now you have this other little pocket of investing. Are you still in that 80-20 that you want it to be? No, you're probably in a 90-10 now. But wait, what's in your savings account? Now you're in a 60-40. I don't understand why people think it's advantageous to do things some things I feel like they're no-brainers. If your company offers you a 401k, you know, do what you do, but make that part of your conversation with someone about your planning. So they, you know, certain things can be automatic, but they should be under an entire rubric of having a conversation with an expert. In the same, you know, there are legal things. If you get a parking ticket, you don't need to call your lawyer. Just pay the parking ticket. OK, yeah. it's 65 bucks here in Brooklyn. Just pay it or don't pay it. I, but don't you know, it's going to cost a lot to interact with me about a parking ticket. But other things like your kid gets pulled over because they got coke, 
you know, they went through a red light and they got coke. Don't try to figure out on the internet how to plead that kid and get him into a diversion program. You want to have a lawyer help you, just as an example. So I, I feel like there's a weird, and this has been coming through with the vaccination stuff too. And I don't, I, I, I'm going into this not knowing your opinion. I think I know what it is, but people, okay, I'm fully vaccinated, okay? I'm not, great. I'm not going to pretend that I can figure out the efficacy, which is a great word that you used earlier. That's an SAT word, boys and girls. The efficacy of the vaccine, which went through a process which people probably don't understand. And when they heard DNA, They were like, this sounds like a Michael Crichton novel. It's not a Michael Crichton novel, ladies and gentlemen. This is actual science by people who spent a lot of time and energy learning and practicing in that science. You're not going to match them by 20 minutes Googling something. I'm sorry, you're just not gonna. And this lack of, of, um, I don't know, this, this lack of appropriate respect for expertise is making me crazy. Is, I mean, do you, don't you find that to be like endemic in our society right now? Very, very much so. Um, I should add though, that I have clients who have like an Acorns account or something and we've discussed it and how much goes in it and that's their play money. And it's a ton of fun in the same way that I have a client who loves to bet on football games. And it's just like part of what he really likes to do. And we plan on it. It's like, are you saving enough? Are you doing everything else you need to do? great, then I don't care what you do with the rest of your money. That's not my job. You're not Susan Orman, who, by the way, irritates me. Sorry. And if you're Susan Orman, let's talk about that woman. (laughs) Because because she shames people, which I find shame to be absolutely useless and harmful. And she's like somebody's, you know, angry, leather clad lesbian mom who should not be telling people how to live their lives. It's important for people to understand finance, but yeah, because clearly you people can't see this, but Bailey uh, got a little energized when I mentioned Ms. Orman. So please hit me with your thoughts. All right, let's talk about Susie. One, I don't even know where to start. Okay, one, she's not a financial advisor. She actually attempted to be in the finance field and failed. There's a book called Pound Foolish, somewhere around here, I can pull the the author, but it goes into a really detailed account of her background as well as other financial pundits, including Dave Ramsey, who is also a massive hypocrite and forced his employees to go into the office during COVID. They are not financial advisors. They couldn't be and go on TV and say what they say. They couldn't be. Why why do you think you let that happen? So they are financial entertainers and they put on great shows and they sell great books and that's their job. And if someone's looking for a model as to how to become a talking head, they are the perfect business models. But if you're looking for financial advice, the lady with all the eye makeup, who isn't me, um, (laughs) sitting on TV yelling at you for something how could that possibly be accurate? I will also add to that, and then there will be a third part that don't let, don't let me forget that one. Okay. So second part is who is she giving the advice to? It's not most people 
in major metropolitan areas. Her advice is the most accurate for households that are never going to exceed maybe like $65,000 of income because they're not gonna have the money to do these bigger things. They they're going to need to save, they're gonna need to use a 401k with a match because hopefully they have one and they're gonna need term insurance. And that's all the dollars allow for. That's math. She's not a genius, that's math. People around here, that's not the average household income. We're looking at people who then are making, let's say like $250,000, just to like pick a number. That's not outrageous. Do you think that someone making $250,000 should follow the same financial advice as someone making $60,000? Also people who have rents, there's no way you can rent anything in my neighborhood. I'm not renting, thank God my wife bought our apartment a while ago, um, but you couldn't rent in my neighborhood for under $2,000 a month, anything. I think even a studio probably. Yeah, I'm up in Washington Heights. I found a rent stabilized place and I like spit on it and licked it and hummed <laughs> it. Like, You're mine now, you're mine, never I leaving. I was in the Heights yesterday, right uh, at, at uh, Columbia Presbyterian. And uh, yeah, the Heights is a really interesting place and I don't wanna get lost in that, but it's, it's vibrant. There's a lot going on. It's a fun place. Um, I wanna make sure though, you said there was a third. Yes, yeah, so three. And this, I think, is just a prime example of hypocrisy in that difference between households who are making under 100,000 and households who are making, say, over 150,000. Um, both Dave and Susie say that no one should own whole life insurance. They will die on that, that ledge. They both own whole life insurance. And both of their wives insist that they own whole life insurance because it is the only and best way to guarantee a death benefit whenever they die. And so these two have it, but they tell everyone else it's horrible. So are you more like the people who are buying the books or are you on a career path and a life path where you're aiming for something that's a little closer to that? And I will say that neither one is wrong. I have clients who are never gonna make more than $60,000 a year and I love and respect them and they're some of my favorite people and we just do different planning. And that's cool. Well, I wanna ask you, this is a great segue because I know I'll run out of time. So I wanna make sure I get this in. So what is it that you actually do for people? Because I wanna take the mystery out of this and I want people to actually know you and what you specifically do. So the best way to describe, to describe what I do right now, because my, uh, my role is in a bit of a transition period, um, but I am aiming to meet people wherever they are financially and help them figure out all of the steps they need to get to where they want to be. And then we'll figure out how involved they want me to be in that process. I love so that, by the way because there are some people who won't work with you unless they'll talk to you and go, oh, you you have assets less than $2 million, good luck. And then they just leave the conversation. That is not yeah. you. No, I have never done that. And I think that 
I'll try not to get angry. <laughs> I'm very angry at the financial oh. industry. Um, but that's, I think that's some place where we've really failed the American people. I can't believe I've said something like that, but we, we have. It's accurate. Because how are they supposed to get the minimum if we don't help them from day one? I just like, how are they supposed to get a million dollars? How do they know how much to save or where to put it? Are they not investing anything until they have a million dollars? Right. Wouldn't it be better to like pick them up at a hundred thousand? I pick people up at like 10,000 sometimes. Mm-hmm. It's like, great, we'll get started. You'll do a monthly contribution in 10 years. We're both going to be really happy instead of you missing out and making bad choices possibly for 10 years. And so I think it's incredibly offensive and counterproductive and probably a large part of the wealth gap because only wealthy people can have advice on how to get wealthy. You know, I, I feel like there is, I, as I've gotten older and I'm almost 60 now and you know, I've traveled and I've, I'm a white guy, Jewish, but still white. So it depends who you talk to, whether I'm really white or not. Um, <laughs> depends who would let me in their club. But um, I'm shocked at the level of disparity between the haves and have nots. Just as an example, I live in a neighborhood where I can walk to my grocery store and my grocery store is not a Whole Foods, but it's as good as a Whole Foods. And I have other options for things and it's all within walking distance. Um, There are food deserts in this country where that literally means people can't get to a decent grocery store, like unless they take a series of buses, you know, just a simple thing like that keeps people in a position of bad health um, and other issues that impact them financially. It's the system is rigged, boys and girls. I'm, I said I'd be getting more political this year, and by golly, I am. And this, this is all interrelated. It's a seamless web of how these things work together. Now, you, I know you say you don't have a, you work with people who don't necessarily just have $2 million. How is it that you work with people that, like, if someone's going to sit down with you, how are your fees? I mean, you get paid, and that's important because you are a professional and you provide service. How do, how do people pay you and how does that work? So up until very recently, there have been two methods and people have been able to kind of choose their own path. One being a fee-based advisor uh, where I listen to what people have. I know how much time it's going to take me. I give them a little padding for 12 months of service and we go through a process. I hand them the financial planning document um, and yeah, then the fee just happens and that locks me in for a year. Um, And then the other way would be commission-based. And that's how I would suggest that people go because I don't want their money for the fee. I want their money to go into the investment. It's as simple as that because the fees that are paid on investments or insurance are there regardless of if I charge someone a fee or not. So if I place an investment or if I place insurance, I'm getting compensated. Your advisor is getting compensated if they're the broker on any product that you have. So if you've paid a fee and they're doing that, they get compensated twice. They can. It's legal. It's totally fine. It's not a moral judgment. Right. It's just not what I was doing generally. Um, But I have become extraordinarily disillusioned with uh, formal relationships with uh, the certain parts of the financial industry. 
um, it's become really tough and they have really put handcuffs on, on people as to what they can do outside of the financial industry. For example, I mentioned that book, Pound Foolish. Um, I put a picture of that book up on my Instagram saying that it was a great read and compliance, the legal department flagged it and said I had to take it down and I couldn't put it up on my personal uh, Instagram because it identified me as a financial person, a financial advisor. I was like, it definitely doesn't, but I had to take it down. Wow, that's incredible. I, I was writing a bio for something I was doing outside of financial advising. And I put in that bio that I've been a financial advisor for 15 years because right. that's true and it's a fact. And they said I couldn't put it in. Wow. I was like, Is so that- how am I supposed to let people know that I'm an expert? And they said, we don't know. Is Pound so, Foolish by Helene Olin, by the way? It could be. I can't see from here. I'm just taking a look. It's exposing the dark side of the personal financial industry. Yes. Yep. Awesome. I just, you know, that book is available on Audible. Audible, not a uh, sponsor of this podcast, but boy, it would be great if they were. They could talk to me at isthatreallylegal.com because I love <laughs> Audible. Um, and I love that you gave us that, but anyway, please, you were saying yes, they, so they handcuff you and you can't do what you, you want to do. And along with that, over the past year, I won't get like crazy political with you. Oh, go for uh, it. Not, I'm not going to get crazy political, <laughs> but there have been, there's been behavior, not surprisingly from straight white cis males in finance. What? <laughs> that has well, I said it to you even before we we started, like a lot of heroes have fallen for me this year and things that I thought, values that I thought I was working with within a community of financial people. I feel like I may be the only one who really had that those values. Right. One of the things that we would always say is protection first. Right. Like we want to get everyone, we want to talk about the insurances and the legal documents because we could be too late. That's why we talk about protection first. And then these are the same people who were saying no masks, no vaccines. I was like, what about protection first? I mean, what, do you care? I know I felt that way about people I went to high school and college with, like suddenly they, you know, with the last guy whose name I won't even mention, like all these closet fascists just came out and I couldn't believe it. Uh, I assume you had a similar ex- yeah. experience. And people that like were safe havens for me in the financial industry, the things even like that they were posting on, on Facebook, horrible memes about democratic uh, officials, elected officials. And I just, I couldn't support, I can't support it. I can't be a part of it. Like morally, I can't be a part of it in that way. And then emotionally, kind of spiritually and everything else, I'm not someone who was born to be stifled or censored. And I think anyone who knows me or has encountered me at all knows that that is the case. And so I have, like I said, I'm changing my relationship with, with the industry. I'm not abandoning clients. I love my clients. My clients are, are life for me. And dear God, they're the reason I've stayed as long as I, I have. But what I'm doing 
is creating a new coaching consulting companion uh, relationship. Basically. Sounds like a much more holistic approach. 100%. You know, I have clients who are coaches, Alexander, Alex Jameson, who you may know of, who was um, helped produce Supersize Me with her ex at the time. Um, and um, she coaches people creatively and uh, is just that kind of, I, I think of you similarly that, you know, you can't divorce a financial being from the entire being because uh, there's no way people are going to behave a certain way and it shows up in their fan financial life. So I think it's a great idea. I, I actually think this is one of the most brilliant things you've ever done is to abandon the old model. And it feels like I'm very excited for you. I'm excited for your existing clients. And I am confident new clients are going to be thrilled to have somebody who sees them as a person and not a spreadsheet. Yeah. Uh, by the way, can you, I just want to know before, because I'm going to be running out of time, how do people get in touch with you if they're just curious about all of this? Yeah, um, that is a great question. So uh, Bailey at entertainingfinance.com is going to be the best place to reach me. Great. And um, Bailey is B-A-I-L-I-E. Correct. Yes. Yeah. And entertaining, entertaining finance, which I love oh, the name. That is just the greatest name. Yeah. So anyway, I'm, sorry. Yeah, no, just to throw like a little more context into the new, the new thing, which is going to be uh, to the financial wellness companion, which really started formulating also this year. I, so I said before I have PTSD and I was officially declared in recovery for that over the past year. And my therapist told me about the New York State Mental Health Peer Specialist Program where people who are in recovery can do training and then go into facilities, do groups and become a peer specialist for people who are still symptomatic and, and looking for something more. And so I completed that training over the course of the last six months. And it was a lot of what I was learning there that has fed into what's being created in the financial wellness companion, which is a lot of person-centered planning, um, which is a very specific thing. But the idea is when in the mental health field that you take a medical model and the doctor makes the decisions for you. You take a person-centered planning model and the person makes the final decision. And that's what I'm taking into this new method is I mean, yes, my clients have always made the final decision, but they've always wanted me to tell them what the decision was first in some way. Right. It's a responsibility and, model. And this is going to be, we're going to do the work and the exploration until you as the person are good. And we're there's a whole setup for it. Uh, but I think... I hope it's the way like all, all careers are working that have a client attached to them, that it's no longer do what I say, but we're going to collaborate on how to make whatever you showed up here today better. I'm really excited for you. I'm excited for clients. We're winding down on time. 
Um, I wanted to thank you for coming here. Is there anything that you were like, oh God, Eric, I really wanted to talk about this today. I think we, we got to it. Yeah, the financial wellness companion is really what I am like the most excited about right now to be able to, to get people to harness their emotions and use those for good with their money. Like I- Yeah, I, people have definitely been, people have been traumatized by finances long before the pandemic. I mean, I have gone through significant up and downs. Oh, look, I'll just share. I've been divorced twice. I gave away two houses, okay? I'm like a rock star. That's something a rock star should do. Not <laughs> me, not Eric Rubin from Massapequa, but heck, I gave away two houses. They may feel differently, but trust me, that's what happened. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, to be able to survive that kind of thing and still have financial wellness can be difficult for many people. And, you know, finances find their way into everything. I mean, personal relationships. I once was dating someone who asked me financial questions pretty early in the process. And that was, I felt it was incredibly intrusive. I don't know how damaged, like, I don't know what they went through before that, but I was like, this is like, I'm not talking about my finances with you at this stage of the game. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I should have. It just did not feel appropriate. You're laughing. I mean, people, well, right? I, I always joke with people that uh, when we start a new relationship, we are far more comfortable getting naked in front of someone than telling them anything about our finances. Yeah. That's true. And, and it could be some of us are in really great shape when we're, you know, looking. So getting naked is not a problem, but financially we're not in great shape. So we don't want to take the clothes off of that. But yeah. I think, I think it's part of our culture. We're just like, but we have a really messed up relationship with money and finances. And I'm excited for people who work with you who through this new process are going to heal that, fix it, or, I don't like fixing or healing as much as just transform their relationship in a way that they're happy. That's awesome. Bailey, thank you so much for being on Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin. I really appreciate you. And uh, thanks. Oh, this was wonderful. I had such a great time. Well, wasn't that a great conversation? Didn't you learn something? I did. Um, I want you to go to wherever you get these podcasts and subscribe to this podcast, please. Leave a review. And if you have questions for me about this podcast or any of the guests, you can go to isthatreallylegal.com and there's a place for you to contact me. Um, I haven't talked about Abe's Muffins yet, so get them. Abe's muffins are uh, allergen-free, but they're full of deliciousness um, in all sorts of flavors, and they also have chocolate brownies. They have birthday cakes. Can you believe that? I mean, uh, so good. Uh, don't do what I would do, which is buy a thing and eat it all yourself in one sitting. I don't recommend that, uh, but they're really good. Um, we're going to have more awesome people uh, that you'll hear me talk with. And if you have suggestions for people, like I said, go to isthatreallylegal.com and let me know. You can also follow me on Twitter, um, on Instagram, on Facebook. I'm in all the social media, if that's the right way to say it. In the meantime, please take care of yourself and take care of others. 
get the vaccine, take care of the people you love, and even people you don't know. All right? Until next time, thanks. Bye-bye.